This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line, and if you are a first-time listener, we're so glad you're here at 88.7 FM, and for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe you've been studying God's Word, and there's a particular challenge that you're facing or a question that you have, or you're in ministry in your church, or maybe even professionally, and you would like biblical counsel. If we can help, by God's grace, we will do the best we can. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859. 525-1859 is the 843 exchange. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. And when you do that, um, the question will pop up on the screen here in front of Rick, and he'll give it to me. And then I might add, if you call live, we usually give you preference, but a lot of people don't want to go on the air live, and you're certainly welcome to dictate your question, and we'll get it that way as well. Well, Rick, let's go ahead, and we'll get started uh, this morning. All right, Pastor. Indeed, we've got a number of questions, including some that came in at the very last minute last week. A caller wanted to know if you believe pastors need to feel the call to become a pastor. Well, uh, that can be somewhat subjective when you use the words feel the call, but do I believe that a pastor should have a sense from God that he has been led into the ministry? And I would say yes, unquestionably. Uh, Now, how you put that in an emotional realm is one thing, but you know, the Bible says a man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. And so if we're seeking God, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That verse is sometimes misused, especially by prosperity theologians. Yeah, seek God and he'll give you a Cadillac if you want a Cadillac. Or actually the the verse is saying that the desires that you have as you're seeking God will originate from him. And there will certainly be confirmation by other men because one of the offices in the New Testament is that of a pastor teacher where a person serves in an elder capacity. And so um, there's certainly the gift of pastor teacher, but there's also the office of pastor in the New Testament. And the office of pastor principally, among other things, is a teaching office. That's what pastors are supposed to do. They're to feed the flock. And so Paul gives instructions that, you know, you don't just lightly lay hands on someone. Uh, There's a sense of uh, call, not only in the person's life, but there's a sense of confirmation in the hearts of those who are willing to ordain the, the man. You're not self-ordained. You're, you're called by God, but if God has called you, there's recognition by other godly men that indeed he has called you. Now, there's all kinds of foolishness going on in our day. Um, someone wrote us last night, my wife and I, <clears throat> 
and uh, asked us, they said, well, you know, there's some women pastors in the church that they are attending, and, um, you know, is that right? And I, I have a sense that it's not, and my wife wrote her back immediately and said, well, your sense is correct, and the reason you have that sense is there's just a check in your spirit, and I'm going to help you, and she was going to call her today, and or email her with some biblical answers and some passages and some messages that she might follow. But what I'm trying to say is there are people who say, well, God's called me to be a pastor, say some female. And I'd say, well, no, God, God hadn't called you because the will of God never contradicts the word of God. And God is explicitly clear that women are not to be pastors. And this is a big, 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 big issue now that is walking for the first time in the front door of evangelicalism. It has been in some of the charismatic Pentecostal realms where, you know, there's a lot of uh, emphasis placed on experience and feelings and those kinds of things, but uh, that's not our authority. Our final authority is God's Word, and so people are now rationalizing God's Word in the evangelical field, and they're, you know, opening up opportunities for, quote-unquote, ministry that aren't consistent with what God has revealed in Scripture. But if God has called a man to be a pastor, there will be, one, a sense in his heart that he has this uh, call from God, and there's an ability that accompanies that call. Uh, God's ways come with God's means. And so if God has called a man to be a pastor, then he's going to equip him with some kind of pastoral speaking gift in the New Testament where he can feed the flock of God. Now, I will say that sometimes people have a sense that God is calling them into some kind of ministry, but it might not necessarily be that of a pastor teacher in the local assembly. Uh, We need people in full-time ministry that are in all kinds of capacities. Rick is sitting here next to me, and he's our director of communications, and he runs you know, so many different aspects of this ministry, including this radio station. Without him, you know, we would be hamstrung. Uh, Our our potential would be limited. So God uses all these different gifts uh, in so many different ways to promote the gospel. But when you're talking about a pastor, there will be a gifting that will accompany that call, and there'll be confirmation by other godly men, so much so that they're willing to lay hands and give endorsement on that particular individual. All right, that's a great question that we've started off with, and uh, I think we've had many come in, so let's go to the next one. Indeed, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on this morning's Bible line. And our next caller would like to know what you think of the Pope's decision to consider whether priests can marry. Well, the Pope is desperate right now because they are closing churches down in some countries of the world by the thousands. Uh, True in America... Why? Because they can't get men to become priests, and so many of the priests they have are are homosexuals. I mean, the homosexual problem is huge. It's much bigger than they want to paint it, and it's not just in America. It's in a multiplicity of countries. Uh, They've struggled in Spain, even Italy itself, the capital of the Roman Catholic Church there with the Pope of Rome, who's uh, the—they have, you know, real problems with— all kinds of child abuse and homosexuality amongst priests in Ireland, uh, just Portugal, a number of countries across the planet. Uh, So you've got that factor, plus you have the factor that they just can't get people to go into the priesthood. And so they are closing down churches all across America, selling the properties. Part of that is to pay off 
the billions of dollars in lawsuits uh, because of what Roman Catholic priests have done. Unbelievers. So should a pastor be married? Sure. Uh, is a priest a pastor? Well, he potentially could be, I suppose. We're all believer priests. But the bigger issue is not whether or not a Roman Catholic can marry as a priest, but whether or not he's born again and even has the gospel. And so the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568 formalized the rejection of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, based on scripture alone. Prior to that time, there were certainly Roman Catholic priests who were born again, but there had been a drift for really a number of centuries away from the truth that uh, righteousness is imputed on the basis of faith alone. So Roman Catholics deny what we call um, imputed righteousness, and it was reckoned to him, it was counted to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. Paul is uh, quoting uh, or referencing Abraham's life, and he's quoting the book of Genesis, the 15th chapter, where he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. On what basis? He says to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed, credited, counted as righteousness. So what God did, one of the most important verses of the 30, what, 31,000 verses in the Bible. One of the most important ones is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So righteousness is not earned. It is imputed. It is given as a gift. It is given on the basis of grace. And the Council of Trent denied that. So it's really somewhat of a secondary, tertiary, really totally nonsensical issue for the Pope to deal with. He's got bigger issues to deal with. He's leading millions of people away from the living God. He has denied so many things that Christ himself has said. So he's got bigger fish to fry, but he doesn't have a mind to think that way. He has drifted away from the truth of biblical authority, as Catholics have for centuries, but he's moving them even in a further, more radical way. So he's desperate right now, but should people in ministry marry? Yeah, uh, that's typically assumed. It's not necessary. If it were necessary, it would disqualify certainly the chief shepherd of the flock, Jesus, who was never married, obviously. It would disqualify the Apostle Paul when he says, I wish that all were like I am, and he was single his whole life. Uh, And people who are single, there are advantages to single people who are pastors and that they can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord, whereas a man who's married, his focus is divided, and it rightly should be, because he has a wife and children to care for. But God has called most people in this life to be married, and so he assumes that when he says he must be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. And he says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So to forbid men to marry, uh, which is what the Roman Catholic Church has done for centuries, uh, to be able to serve in ministry is uh, an anti-biblical truth. But like I say, that's just somewhat of a moot question in the sense that um, these men who are in ministry are really in no ministry at all. 
because they, unless you want to say it's a ministry of the evil one, because let's face it, you know, that's what they are doing. They are leading people down the broad road that leads to destruction rather than through the narrow path of Christ. Now, you say, that's mean, that's harsh. That No, I'm just telling you the truth. You can read the Council of Trent and its uh, works that have all been canonized. There's over 100 anathemas against evangelical Bible-believing Christians who preach the gospel. They're against guys like me. And by the way, Vatican I, Vatican II reaffirmed the Council of Trent. And in 2010, when the Cardinal of College of Bishops uh, of Cardinals met, uh, once again, they reaffirmed uh, the Council of Trent. So the Roman Church has not moved away from that. Look, you can be wrong on a lot of things. You could be wrong on whether or not um, you know, a priest should marry or not and still go to heaven. Uh, but you can't be wrong on how justification takes place. So the Roman Catholic Church does not teach faith alone and Christ alone equals salvation, where good works are the byproduct. They teach that good works help to save you. They teach what's called an infused righteousness. And so what happens is, um, you know, as you, through this sacramental system, uh, are given grace, that grace then allows you to do good works. And if you do enough good works, you'll make it into heaven. And they say no one goes directly to heaven unless they are a saint. And I suppose on that realm, they're right. Uh, in that the saints in the New Testament is every born-again, blood-bought, Bible-believing Christian. But in their mind, a saint is someone who, through an exemplary life, has achieved a righteousness through infused grace. So they would say, oh, yeah, grace, that's important. We get grace through the sacramental system. And those grace, that grace that you get through the sacraments allows you to do works. And if you do enough good works and maybe you go way beyond what's necessary, then you are deemed a saint and your leftover works are then spilled over into those folks who have to go to purgatory for a period of time. And all these doctrines that have very little to do with what the scriptures plainly teach. And so the sin of presumption in Roman Catholicism is to deny that you can know that you're saved. They would say that's a pride issue to say you know you're saved. The only ones who they say we know went directly from earth to heaven are those who've been deemed saints. So it's really, it's a, it's a good question you're asking. Um, and, and I think from evangelicals, maybe we need to look at it from the opposite point of view, that a man being sick, single does not disqualify him from being a pastor. But a man being single in the pastorate is not the norm. It's the rare exception that the Bible paints in 1 Corinthians 7. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hi. How can we help, my brother? What's going on? Yes. I got a question. See, I know the Bible, the forefathers, the fathers of the Greek New Testament taught that the, the gods uh, is, is God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, and God in essence is spirit. Now, my question is, since God's in essence and spirit, and they, they teach that God should treat distinct persons, could you show me where a particular verse that shows specifically that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, apart from the phrase God the Spirit? Sure. Uh, there, there are many passages, and what I might direct your attention to is a course that you can listen to 
um, through our Institute of Biblical Studies. And if you get the Search the Scriptures app, if you go to the App Store, download the Search the Scriptures app, and all the Institute of Biblical Study courses, along with hundreds of sermons I've preached, are there on that app. And I have a whole course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit. And so pneumatology, oligos, is the study of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of uh, fields like that, bibliology, the study of the Bible, Christology, the study of Christ. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And it's a lengthy course. It's several hundred pages in notes, but it would be, I think, very helpful to you to get that question answered. Um, And one of the things that I do is I look at, one, uh, one, that the Holy Spirit is a person, uh, that he's not a thing, he's not a force, he's not a part of of the Father, like, you know, I have a spirit within my human body, uh, my human spirit, that by God's grace has been quickened and made alive through his second birth, but even before my second birth, there was a spiritual dimension to Carl Brogy, the unseen portion. Sometimes in a broad way, we refer to it as our soul, in the broad sense, uh, what is it profit of man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But in a technical sense, the Bible describes this as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And so when we speak of the Spirit of God, we're not talking about some part within the Father. We're talking about a distinct member of the Godhead. So what I do in that course is I show first that the Holy Spirit is a person, that he has all the attributes of a person, intellect, emotion, and will. Uh, he thinks. He searches the deep things. He is the one who has will. He chooses as he wills how to give gifts to the church, for instance. He has emotion. He is grieved, Paul tells us, when uh, we sin. But just because he's a person, and that's an important thing to realize. He's not a thing or a force. And so the pantheistic um, objectives that the founder of the Star Wars movies through his books wrote are, you know, it's pantheism. It's not biblical theology. God is not a force, and certainly the Spirit is not a force, and we should never refer to him as it. He is not an it. He is a person. But just because he's a person does not necessarily make him God, And so I go through a number of passages. One that is easy for a lot of Christians to remember is Acts chapter 5, when you have the case with Ananias and Sapphira, and a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Yes, it did. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Yes, it was. Then he asked, well, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So this guy trying to be a big shot, he sold a piece of land for $50,000, say, and he could have said, well, here's 10 grand. I want to give it to the church. Uh, But that's not what he did. He he sold it, say, uh, he he came and he lied. And he said, I got 10 grand for the land. And here, here's all of it. Here's every penny I got when he got 50. Well, 
you got 50 now. He was not required to give any. This is what we might call a a uh, an offering above the tithe. Uh, I suppose it could have been, uh, though, if he sold it for 50, he would have given five, and then he could have given another five as an offering above and beyond the tithe. But um, my point is, in all of this, is that he said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. So there's one verse of about 25 that I share in the course on pneumatology. So I would direct you to that. But if you think about it, even the, in the baptismal formula, most every week when we baptize someone at Community Bible Church, how do we baptize them? Just like Jesus instructed us in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples or converts of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, please notice, it doesn't say in the names of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, but in the name singular of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this is a good verse that affirms the triunity of God, three distinct members. If the Spirit was just a part of the Father, he might have said, well, baptize him in the name of the Father and the Son. But no, in the name singular of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even at the baptism, you see all three members of the Godhead present. The Spirit descending as a dove. Uh, It's what we call theophany, where there is a physical manifestation of God. Uh, The Spirit is not a bird, but he physically manifested himself as a dove on that day. The Father spoke from heaven. The Son was there. All three members of the Godhead present. But again, this would be a good course for you to study since you're asking this question, and it's a very, very important question, and we need to know how to answer it, not superficially, but in depth. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Beverly writes, my granddaughter has read the book The Road Back to You and is about to lead a study on it in her non-denominational church. When I told her of my concerns, she got upset with me. What is your opinion on this book? Well, it's a very dangerous book. You know, every once in a while, some new book comes down the pike in Christendom, and it's a very, very dangerous book. And because, unfortunately, today, so many of God's people are ignorant of Scripture, when they read a book like this, they get all excited. But it's it's rooted in what we call an, an enneagram. An enneagram um, goes back centuries. It has its roots in the occult, um, but it was brought up again in the 1970s through a Roman Catholic priest. I think he was a San Franciscan friar, if I remember, a Franciscan friar. Um, but in either case, it seems harmless on the outside. It talks about these nine different personality types and that we all have one, and we need to find out what our personality type is. But it's not even like some of these other personality tests that you take, like a Meyer-Briggs test, or uh, it's been, that whole concept has been, over the years, marketed in different ways. What color is your parachute? Even Tim LaHaye wrote a thing called uh, Spirit-Filled Temperaments, and, you know, you're classified as sanguine or cleric or 
Um, you know, all kinds of different tests like that. And I'm not, I'm not a fan of any of those, by the way, um, any more than I'm a fan of love languages. And this is just a lot of psychobabble that has walked in the front door of the church. But this is beyond psychobabble. This is really dangerous because it's asking you through these personalities, psychological studies to dig that, dig deep back into your past, um, to see what some of your, you know, underlying motivations are in life. Uh, and it takes you back to some of the, sometimes some of the dark things in your life. And, you know, you try to surface them up and uh, it's not healthy and it's not biblical. And let me just say, how are we to grow in Christ? Look, if I needed some kind of Meyer Briggs test to be successful in marriage, then my, Paul was at a great deficit because he spoke of no such things. And so what we are doing today in Scripture, in, in evangelical churches, is we're denying, in essence, the sufficiency of Scripture. The biggest test is right now not the inerrancy of the Bible. That has always been a given in conservative evangelical churches that the Bible is inerrant in every single word. But now it's the sufficiency of Scripture, so we've got, you know, Jesus calling Sarah Young and, you know, and she talks about how God speaks directly to her. And we got Beth Moore getting, you know, direct text messages from God. And Beth, you know, this is what you need to do, Beth. And, you know, it's just, this is like really dangerous, dangerous stuff. And this book is the same principle. And so what we're supposed to do is not to dig down deep into our path, past. We're to dig down deep into Jesus. We're to look at him Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 3. It's the text that comes to mind. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So we're supposed to behold the Lord. Dr. Bill Bright, I remember him saying to me as a new Christian, he said, a good practice is you glance at yourself, but you gaze at the Lord. Look, if you just focus on yourself and your past and your failures and your uh, deficits and the family background you had, if it was not healthy, you'd get awful depressed. And that's not the solution. The solution is to gaze at Christ. And as you gaze at Christ, you're transformed into his image. And so books like this, they're rooted in a concept that the Bible, the Word of God, is not sufficient, that we need all these outside tools, and some of them are dark. And the fact that the whole Enneagram system came from the occult ought to be a red flag to any thinking biblical person if they would just pull back the veneer a little bit and see the roots of this whole um, system on which this book is based it should frighten you, like, what am I really getting into? So we'll hear more of this book because it's going to become, no doubt, a bestseller. Let's go on to the next question. All right. We just had a caller ask, would you please explain John MacArthur's position as a five-point Calvinist? Is he teaching that God chooses only the elect to be saved? Well, um, John is a Calvinist, and in recent years, he has moved into the realm of five-point Calvinism, that the atonement of Jesus was limited 
only to the elect. That's more recent in the last, I think I'd say it's probably safe to say the last decade. Now, with that said, I love John MacArthur. And if I thought he was heretical, uh, we wouldn't play him on WAGP. But there are Calvinists who hold some three points, some four points, some five point. And probably, you know, maybe even the caller who is uh, phoning this in, he would be a three point Calvinist. What, What are we talking about? Three, four, five. It's based on... Uh, something we call TULIP. TULIP uh, stands for T for total depravity. Probably this caller uh, believes in the doctrine of total depravity, that there's not a spark left within us by which we can come to the Lord independently of his work. No, God must first work. He must be the first mover. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead men have no capacity to respond. So the initiative begins with with God, total depravity, you, unconditional election. Here would be a um, point of divergence for many in that God unconditionally elects people to salvation. And so there are even camps within unconditional election, singular election, double election, uh, MacArthur would be more singular election, not that God created some specifically to go to hell, but because of the, lost, the lostness of man, he reached down and rescued some of the lost, not all, but just some, to come to himself and to believe in Jesus. And this choosing by God was unconditional, that it had nothing to do with us. And I would say, no, um, God conditionally elects based on what he foresees and what he foreknows, where foreknowledge is not God choosing some uh, independently of their own will to come to Christ, but God choosing some to become believers. And and, and he wouldn't deny free will. He'd say, yes, I freely uh, chose Jesus only because Jesus first freely chose me. Um and, and then they would say, well, why would God choose me and nothing in me? And, and again, there is nothing in us that can take credit for our salvation. And that's where a Calvinist would differ from an Arminian, where an Arminian would say, no, there is something within man that can respond independently of God. Now you have something to take credit for. And really, there's nothing to take credit for in our salvation. It is totally a work of God, but you don't have to um, believe in unconditional election to believe that uh, salvation is not a total work of God. I, I didn't come to Christ on my own. It was God orchestrating circumstances, working in my life and my heart, and it's true of every salvation. So you can't say, well, I decided, um, you know, if I would... I could get some answers to my question. I would become a believer. So I read Josh McDowell, or I read this apologist or that apologist, and I was convinced, so I chose the Lord. The fact that you would even read a book like that was based on God's initiative in your life, because there's none who seeks God, no, not one, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. L stands for limited, limited atonement that the atonement of Jesus was limited only for the elect. And the argument is, is that, well, Christ laid down his life for his sheep. Well, he did, but that didn't mean he didn't die for everyone else. 
I think it's important to make a distinction, and they use these same terms but with different definitions between the intent of the atonement and the extent of the atonement. The extent of the atonement is for all men, and that's clearly the parallel that Paul makes in Romans 5, just as through one man, Adam, death spread to the whole human race because all sinned, even so through one man, Christ, our second Adam, a provision was made. His argument is just as one person could affect the race, even so one person's substitutionary death on a cross could affect the race. He made a provision for all, but just because he provided for all does not mean all are saved. The Bible does not teach universalism. Some would say, well, if Jesus died for every single person beyond the elect, then his blood was wasted. No, it was not. It becomes the basis for condemnation because God gave people a real opportunity to come to faith. And so when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world means world there. It doesn't mean just the elect. And so no man will have an excuse. No one will be able to say, well, God convicted me and showed me my need, but Jesus didn't make a provision for me, so it didn't make any difference. No, he made a provision for all, and it's our unbelief in that provision that becomes the basis of our condemnation at the great white throne judgment. And so um, T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, or sometimes it's called a particular atonement, Um, I, irresistible grace, that the grace of God is irresistible. And I would say, no, it's not irresistible. People can resist the grace of God. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the preaching deacon, is giving an incredible sermon. And if you want to try to get a uh, good feel for the entire Old Testament and its message, then study Acts chapter 7 and look up all of the Old Testament passages that Stephen relates to in this sermon. This guy had a great command of Scripture, and you will have an overview of the entire Old Testament. He just grabs the critical junctures in Israel's history all ultimately, of course, pointing to Christ because the scriptures speak of me. And of course, as he comes to the end of the sermon, he says to these Jewish men who want to kill him, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, being Jesus, of course, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling down on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep, that is, he died. So these were men who resisted the Holy Spirit. Well, the Calvinists would say, well, they resisted him because they were not elect. Well, they could have been elect had they believed, and they had as much chance as God gave me when I was 18 years old, and God gave me a free will. My free will 
was brought along by the Spirit of God because there's none who seeks God. I was dead in my sin. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. But I still had a choice whether or not I would freely choose Jesus or whether I would reject him. And these men resisted the Spirit, and they rejected him. P, perseverance of the saints. It speaks not just of our eternal security, but a much-needed truth in our day that if you are saved, you will persevere. That is to say, whatever the hardship, even persecution, even a gun put to your head, you will not reject Jesus. You will confess him as Lord, even if it means your own blood, the perseverance of the saints. And that's what Jesus underscores in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, where he says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. He's not teaching salvation by perseverance, but he is saying if you are saved, you will persevere. It's the same truth that's brought out in 1 John 2, 19, where John is dealing with uh, false teachers who went into the church, um, and he says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. That is, if they were true believers, they would have persevered. They would have went on in the faith. Uh, we were talking in staff meeting this morning. Rick had the devotional. Someone does it differently every week. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul is really actually bringing out the same truth from that very chapter of Scripture. And he's speaking of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which also you stand by which you are saved. If, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Paul recognized that within the Corinthian fellowship, there were some that were not true born again believers. And so that's why he says in the second letter, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. And Paul is simply affirming the doctrine of perseverance that you will hold fast uh, what you have believed if you have truly believed genuinely, unless your faith is in vain. It's an affirmation of the perseverance that comes. So even this caller, he's probably a three-point Calvinist. May, maybe he doesn't know it, but why even use the word Calvinist? Because Calvinism, too, is much more than just uh, the realm of soteriology, because you know, John MacArthur would be quick to tell you, well, I'm not a Calvinist in terms of my ecclesiology uh, because he believes in the autonomy of the local church, that there's not a structure above the local church. Calvin didn't believe that. Uh, He would not believe in infant baptism in his ecclesiology. He would teach uh, post-conversion baptism. He would certainly not be a Calvinist in his eschatology, his doctrine of last things, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, Uh, and that John Calvin, and really his whole doctrine of soteriology is based on his eschatology, and that's based on the premise that God's done with the nation of Israel, that the church is the new Israel. And so he is a replacement theologian, and Calvin said some terrible things about the Jewish people. And that becomes uh, how, that becomes the um, template in which he reads Romans chapter 9, that the focus of Romans chapter 9 is not a God choosing one nation out of all the nations of the world, but it's God choosing um, you as a person over some other person to go to heaven. 
And that's just not what the Bible teaches. And so let me read a quote to you from John Calvin from one of my sermons. It said, the Jews' rotten and unbending obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. (laughs) You know, he had some uh, talking to do with the Lord and that work called a response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. Um, John Calvin was just wrong on that. And so he thought, because the church was the new Israel, that you should mimic the theocracy that God had in the Old Testament. So that's what he tried to do in Geneva. And he, of course, wanted to punish heresy in the same way that it was punished in the Old Testament. If someone blasphemed, you stoned them to death. So he he had a difference with a theologian of the day, Michael Cervantes, and he had him uh, burned at the stake. And he said, make sure the wood's extra green. Um, So, you know, Calvin was wrong on some things. He's wrong on a lot of things. Um, anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and our next caller would like you to explain your stance against medical marijuana. Do you have the same opinion about all other prescribed medications people take? They ask. Well, medical marijuana is a broad term. Um, it can mean everything from going into a store where Uh, They give you some green pot cannabis and you smoke it uh, to uh, drops uh, that give you no high whatsoever. So it can mean a lot of things. But those people who are pushing medical marijuana, it's been well documented, have done so with a view towards making the medical marijuana, um, opening the option to recreational marijuana. So we have over 20, 21 states, I think the last I counted, where medical marijuana is now legal. And many of these states, soon to follow, was that of recreational marijuana. And it's a real problem. Um, many of the states, now there are many politicians in Colorado who was the, the earliest state to um, make recreational marijuana, that they really question the wisdom now of what they've done. Um, money, greed, often drives it, not to mention a um, a morality that is not rooted in Scripture. And, and that's really where we are going as a nation. You know, when the governor of North Carolina two weeks ago said you can kill a baby born alive, if the mother and her doctor so agree, then... Look, that's that's wicked. He's an evil, evil, evil man, just like the governor of Virginia and the governor of New York. These are evil men. Let's just call evil what it is. This is a new holocaust that is coming on the land in another form. Abortion is bad enough, but now to take a baby that is alive and to say we're going to kill this baby and we're going to do it all under the guise of It's a woman's right to choose what she wants to do with her body. Well, it is her right to choose what she does with her body, but the baby is not her body. Biblically, the baby is a separate entity. And so this is no difference. This is is liberal, um, upside-down thinking, not just Democrats, but now some Republicans. Look, there's a guy in our Beaufort County 
who, when he runs again, I'm going to do everything in my power to oppose him. Because when he stands up there on the floor in Columbia, uh, he always gives his little pitch for medical marijuana. And I, 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 I am against it. Because, look, you ask any cop, any police officer, if they are in favor of medical marijuana, knowing that in most states it then leads to recreational marijuana and knowing that it is a gateway drug, they are totally against it. Most police officers, I I haven't met a police officer yet who's in favor of it. I'm sure there are out there. I just haven't met any. And we have a lot of police officers in our church. But this is God giving the nation up to deprave, reprobate mind. This is the way a reprobate mind thinks, um, where you call evil good and good evil. So no, you know, I'm not against easing the burden and the pain of a person who's suffering. Neither is God. And that's why God allows for strong drink. The one exception in Proverbs 31, where you can take straight strong drink without mixing it. And of course, it's not the distilled liquors that come almost a thousand years after the Bible's completed, but just fermented wine. You could give it to a dying, despairing man. Why? Because it was an act of mercy, much like some man whose body is filled with cancer and he's in incredible pain, and we give him a morphine drip to ease his pain. We're not trying to make him a drug addict or give him a high. We're just trying, as an act of mercy, to keep him from screaming right into his death. And so in that respect, I'm not against you know that legitimate use of drugs. I don't see smoking dope in that form of marijuana is any kind of legal avenue um, that should be taken in our state or anywhere else in America because it is a slippery slope and you can go online and just type in all the states that started with medical marijuana and now all the states that embrace uh, recreational marijuana. It's kind of like with abortion. Well, you know, we, we, we want this form of abortion legal. Now, now, we're, now we're killing babies. We want to kill babies the day they're born. I mean, you talk about evil. And this is just, this is just Satan. Look, I, I, I know too many people who've smoked dope in their life, and they, their brains are fuzzy. They can't even think straight. Um, Dope-smoking people can't think straight. They've lost a lot of their mental acuity. And it's very, very sad. And Satan just wants to ruin a generation of young people. God help us if it's legalized in all 50 states. All right, very good. William from Stevens City, Virginia writes, My concern relates to the practice of human cremation. I see no evidence of this practice within the scriptures that should say something right there. I only note the burying of the dead. The closest scripture comes to cremation when... Abraham intended to sacrifice Isaac. I know burying is fine for Christians, but can you provide scriptural passages that would warn us not to use uh, the practice of cremation, which may be less costly, but are perhaps linked to other cultures and religious practices that are not Christian? On a slightly different side of that question, for Christians that do get cremated, do you suppose that there will be problems for those asleep in Christ when Christ returns to Mount Olivet at his second coming? Well, you know, certainly there's no problem for God to raise a body up, whether it was cremated in an oven, uh, destroyed by the Nazis, eaten by fish at sea right down to the bone where the bone itself is gone, 
or squirrels have eaten the bone out in the woods somewhere. Uh, it's not a, it's not a problem for God to raise up a body. So let's just affirm that very very clearly that God will raise up the dead whether or not they went to dust quicker because someone chose cremation over burial. Uh, I would just say that there are many things that we do in the church today and in Judaism by model and not by direct command. So there's not a direct command in Scripture, bury your dead, but there is a model in Scripture that that's how believers were to dispose of the body. Now, Abraham is the father of the faithful, and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, he is the father of the faithful. He gave a tenth of all that he had. How did he know to give a tenth? Why didn't he give 25%, 3%, or 100%? Why did he give a tenth? Because he was responding in faith to what God had revealed. And of course, there was a time when God in many portions and in many ways spoke to his servants. And before Moses had penned the first verse of Scripture some 600 years after Abraham, Abraham walked according to the revealed word of God as he was a direct conduit of truth. And Abraham buried his dead. Why? Because that's what God had spoken to him about. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, they're all buried. Joseph, his uh, bones are put in a coffin, and he said, look, when you leave this place, I want my body brought to the land of promise. Why? Because he was a man of faith. He believed that the land that God had given and that God said would be given after they would leave Egypt, and God had revealed that they would be in Egypt 400 years, he wanted uh, his body to be buried in the land of promise. And so they carried his bones, and they buried him when they came into the promised land. And so uh, these are important, important truths that God reveals in Scripture. In the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we are told of the death of Moses. Now, whether Joshua wrote this chapter or whether Moses wrote it predictively, it doesn't matter. Uh, Moses either wrote these verses from a vision of the future or um, the last few verses were written by Joshua. It makes no difference. Uh, Nonetheless, it's attributed to Moses so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, being the Lord, Yahweh, is the nearest antecedent. And he, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. And so God, by his own practice, affirmed burial. You know, there are no places anywhere in the entire country of Israel where someone can be cremated. There are none. It's against the law. And by the way, for the first couple hundred years virtually of American history, no Christians ever considered cremation. It's not until 1878 that we have the first cremation in America. And the movement was started by Unitarians who at this point in their theology denied the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the bodily resurrection. And so they were raising their puny little fists in the face of Bible-believing Christians and said, let's see what your God can do with this body that we've just burned into ash. Well, I'm telling you, it's not a problem for God. And, and that's why John at the Great White Throne Judgment speaks of 
Hades and death. Hades has the soul. The grave has the body. And he speaks even of those who are raised up out of the sea because a common myth of the day is that if you died at sea and your body was totally disintegrated by fish and crabs and lobsters and oysters and everything else that would eat it into nothing, that you couldn't be raised up. And God affirms that the resurrection will happen no matter what. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think it was in 2018, maybe it's 17, but it's been in the last 24 months for the first time, there were more cremations in America than there were burials. We passed the 50% mark. And a lot of Christians just say they do this because it's, um, it's cheaper. And of course, so much of what happens in most states are regulated by people who go up to the uh, state legislators and they say, well, we need to have at least 1900, 1999, you know, to perform uh, a funeral. And that's uh, that's just the minimum upfront cost before you buy a box or a vault that's not always required, uh, depending on the state that you're living in um, and so on. And it can get expensive. It's still about 5K if you bury someone. It's about 3K if you cremate them. Uh, you can buy your casket through Costco. Uh, you can save a little money, have it bought in advance. Um, you know, you don't need a vault. It's certainly not a problem. Um, but here's here's the biblical practice is you bury people. And that's the assumption even in the New Testament. Um, wicked people uh, were burned, like in Joshua 7, 25, Leviticus twenty fourteen. if you wanted a couple texts. Or I have my Bible here open to Second Kings 21 and verse 6. He made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, and use divination. So here, here you've got raw pagans uh, burning their children. And again, even Christians aren't consistent, by the way. Let me just bring it down to practice. Let's suppose you have a three-year-old child that dies. Picture in your mind, you have a three-year-old child that dies. Are you going to burn that child in some oven into ash, or are you going to bury it? You're going to bury that child. I guarantee it. I've done a lot of funerals for children more than I wish. I've yet to see anybody cremate their child. So one word, why, why would you do that? Well, there's just something precious about that little child, and that's what you're affirming. Now, no disrespect. Don't write me. I don't want to get your emails. And I'm not saying you did this when you cremated Grandma. I always bury my treasure, and I burn my trash. And the body is sacred, and it should be recognized.